0: All right, this morning we have a special opportunity. Uh, the other thing that's going to start on January 10th, Sunday night, is a program called Alpha. And Alpha is a, basically a program where you uh, are able to ask a friend to come to dinner, and you're able to have them watch a video, and then around a small table have a discussion. And in that, uh, they get exposed to the claims of Christ. And uh, we're starting on the 10th. And in our mission statement, we've been doing this series, Norview Is?, and we've talked a lot about the celebrate part and a lot about the serve one another. It's time that we start emphasizing the third part, the share part, right? We've been a church plant for a lot of years. Well, we're no longer a plant. We're now planted. And we were, now it's time to bear fruit. And so we're going to make a concerted, intentional effort to uh, reach people. And the way we're going to do it is by uh, making a concerted, intentional effort for you to be involved in asking friends to come to Alpha. Uh, we would like you to attend because we always say it's uh, you don't go to a restaurant that you haven't been to yourself, right? You don't recommend a restaurant you haven't been to. And so we want you to take a look at it as well and then think through who could I invite? who could, Who's in my world? Who's just a natural tap that I could say, hey, we're doing this thing. Would you have any interest? I'd come to one or two of those. That'd be fantastic. So to highlight that this morning. Uh, I've asked David Goebel to come. David is the regional director of Alpha in this area, and uh, he's a good friend. And as we've gotten together, very similar hearts. And he's come this morning to share with us the whole story of that and uh, the heart of the Father and what Alpha would look like for you. So would you give David a warm Norphy welcome as he comes up?
1: Thank you, Steve, uh, and um, just it's, uh, it's such a great honor to be here with you. And uh, Steve has become a, a great friend uh, in the last several months as we've gotten acquainted and shared a little bit of fellowship together as brothers in Christ and looking uh, visionary towards the future and uh, using Alpha as a strategy and a tool here at Northview. I'm super excited uh, for what's going to happen here. Uh, just strap in and get ready because it's going to be a great ride, and uh, you're in for a real treat. Hopefully uh, this morning you'll come away encouraged and inspired to be a part of that, to play a key role in, in what's going to be happening around here. And, uh, and I just want to, my prayer this morning driving in through the very thick fog uh, was that you would just come away very encouraged and inspired. So uh, let's, let's uh, spend some time together in God's word. Would you turn and, uh, and read along with me? Uh, we're going to read from Luke chapter 15. It's, uh, it's a little bit of a longer passage Uh, But there are three parables and stories that hang together in Luke 15. And so we're going to read the whole thing. So just hang with me. Uh, And and these are stories that Jesus tells to give us just a little window into the heart of the father. So Luke tells the story this way. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats dinner with them. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and she says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had. He set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to to the fields to feed his pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick. Bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf. For he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry. He refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. And you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Oh, my son, the father said, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And that's where we're going to end it. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord, we want to hear you speaking, not me speaking. Because if it's just me, then we're all wasting our time. But if if your Holy Spirit anoints these words of mine, these thoughts of mine, So that they become words of life for us. Then it's all worth being here and listening for what you want to say. So we ask, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you just come and be with us and speak through your word and my words? To speak to our hearts and minds. Lift us up, encourage us, inspire us. Give us a vision for your heart and our place in this world, because we ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, for me, the last uh, couple of weeks in the news cycle has been pretty tough, and a lot of negative news that uh, it gets to me after a while. You know, when you, when you, when you hear the stories of, of like what happened in the Paris attacks where ISIS just you know, shed innocent blood kind of senselessly, where, where, where a police officer just a few days ago in Colorado Springs, a brother in Christ, a, an elder in his church, a, a member of his worship team, does his duty by protecting life at a Planned Parenthood clinic of all places and loses his life in the process. That just gets to me. City of Chicago, where I went to college, great city, threatens to become unhinged again by violence and protests. Because of the angst and the anger and the frustration that's been pent up and built up over the years, one of our leading political candidates takes the public discourse to a new low by graphically and openly mocking a reporter who is obviously severely disabled and the Syrian refugee crisis is out of control it's gone off the rails kids are sleeping in the gutters and dads are so desperate that they're standing at the borders at the checkpoints saying either let me through or kill me now because i can't go on living this way anymore does it ever seem to you that that, that things have just gone off the rails with the human race there are times when I, it just gets to me and that we as 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 a species as a people seem to have so lost our way i know i know solomon said there's nothing new under the sun this kind of stuff has been happening for generations i i I realize that but it doesn't make it any less heartbreaking just because injustice and loss are commonplace in our experience does not make them okay amen It's still heartbreaking. It's still a reality that we live in a broken, fallen world. This is not what God intended when He created us and and called us good and very good. It was not His original vision for the human race. God's heart, God's vision for us is not that we would be lost and floundering as a people, but that we would be found and in right relationship With our creator living in the beauty and the joy and the hope and the peace that that brings. And that vision that original vision of creation is really what what kind of lies at the kernel of the heart of these three stories that Jesus tells here in Luke 15. These three lost and found stories. The context is Jesus is having dinner. At a Pharisee's house, he's been invited to have dinner, happens to be on the Sabbath day, and there's a guest there that, um, uh, that needs healing, so Jesus heals the guest. Well, on the Sabbath day, you don't do any work, and so the, the religious elite who are gathered around that table, the prominent ones, get, a little, little, get their hackles up because Jesus has done work by healing this guy, showing an, an act of grace and mercy and compassion apparently didn't sit too well with those guys. And Jesus, getting some pushback and some flack from these guys, starts to notice that they're, they're, they're at this table and everybody seems more concerned about themselves and what positions they have at the table. They want to get the best place at the table and the most food. And I don't know if that happened at your house on Thursday around Thanksgiving, but it was happening here. And, and, and Jesus is, is realized something is really out of whack that they're more concerned about their own comfort, their own prominence, where they're sitting around the table than the fact that this guy who needed healing, compassion, mercy got just got what he needed. Jesus tells this 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 story. In the in the context of that. Uh, it's sort of a teachable moment, a parable we call the, the great banquet. It's a story of a, of, of a wealthy individual who throws a big feast. And he invites all these people to come. But everybody, because of their self-centeredness and self-absorption, says, I'm too busy. I got stuff to do. I can't come. And so they disgrace this gracious invitation by refusing to come. And Jesus is sort of setting it up, trying to help the folks sitting around the table where he is understand that being a follower of Christ has nothing to do with comfort and self centeredness and self absorption. It has everything to do with costly love and lavish grace and the kind of compassion and mercy that they just saw modeled before them in the healing of this man. And is that context where Jesus begins to tell these three lost and found stories. Luke says that, that as he did, that they were sort of muttering around the table. This guy, I don't know how he got in to the banquet, but uh, he eats dinner with tax collectors and sinners. They're muttering, Luke says, around the table. And Jesus picks up on this and he says, um, let me tell you a story. And he begins to tell these three stories, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. I don't know if you noticed, uh, but, but they all kind of hold together in a similar kind of thematic way. The, the, they all follow a similar pattern. The first is that something of great value is lost. If you're a shepherd and you only have 100 sheep, you lose one, that's a big hit. And so you leave the 99 and you go relentlessly pursue that lost one until you find it. If you're a woman of modest means and you only have 10 silver coins and you lose one, that's a big hit. And you're going to do everything you can to make sure that you can find that coin, if at all possible, so you can make rent and buy groceries and do the things you need to do. And if you're a parent and your child has wandered off into the wastelands of living, you're going to do everything you can because that child matters to you. That child is of inestimable worth. Somebody say amen, parents. That child is of inestimable worth, right? So that thing of value is lost. Secondly, in all of these stories, after the, the realization has dawned that this valuable thing has been lost, there's a desperate search that ensues. The shepherd leaves and goes and, and, and pursues. The woman sweeps the house clean and desperately searches. The father doesn't leave the house, but you get the sense that there is this, this relentless longing and looking on the horizon for the son to come home. There's, there's a searching, not a, not a physical departure from his, his home base, but it's a, but a kind of an emotional departure, always scanning, always watching for the son, watching for the horizon that, that he might return home. He'd leave the light. It was the original Motel 6. Dad would leave the light on waiting for his son to come home, right? So there's this, this pursuit of that valuable thing that was lost. Then thirdly, it's found, right? And when it's found, there's a great celebration. Shepherd puts the lamb on his shoulders, walks back, calls his friends and says, let's eat, we're going to party. I found my lost sheep. The woman calls her friends over. She throws a party. And the father, when his son returns, throws this great banquet. This incredible, whole, the whole town gets invited to this great banquet. It's a pretty amazing set of, of, of stories, the crescendo of which, of course, is the last one. The, 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 the lost son and the father, the, what we have called the, the parable of the anybody, prodigal son. I don't know where we got that title. I think it was somebody in, in an editorial room somewhere that was doing a translation. You know how they have little titles up above and they decided that's what we're going to call it. And so ever since then, we, we've called it that. I, I want to advocate. Jesus didn't call it that, by the way. So I want to advocate for a, a, a title change here, I'm taking some editorial license, but I think, I think you'll understand why in a minute. I, I want to advocate that we change what we call this last story in Luke 15 from the parable of the prodigal son to the parable of the loving father and his two lost sons. And here's why. Let's dig into the text a little bit. The son... The younger one, whom we typically associate uh, with this story, comes to his dad and uh, wants, uh, wants all that is due him. Now, this was not something that wasn't due him. It, it just would have come to him at a later date. Uh, Luke says, not long after that, um, there this just younger son comes to him and says, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he's divided his property between them. Now, when we read that, we think, big deal, right? I mean, it's a little bit impolite. He goes to his dad. He asks for his inheritance a little bit early. Uh, but what you need to understand, as commentators who are well-versed in uh, ancient Middle Eastern culture like Ken Bailey have, have helped us understand, is that it might be a little impolite to us, but in that day, it would have been seen as a serious insult for a young son to come to his father prematurely and ask for his inheritance Ken says that it's functionally the equivalent of the son saying, I wish you'd just drop dead so I could have your money. I'm more concerned about your stuff, your money, than I am about you. So in essence, I wish you'd just drop dead and get out of the way so I could get to the money. And in those days, the cultural expectation would have been in the face of such a grave insult that his father would have slapped him across the face with his left hand, which was a, a way of symbolizing the rejection of, of, of his father and would have driven him from the house and the family never to be seen or heard from again. That would have been the norm. That would have been the expectation of his father's response to this serious, grave, embarrassing insult that his young kind of uh, arrogant son has just heaped upon his loving father. What's the real response, though? The expectation is the dad's going to slap him and kick him out of the family. But in the story that Jesus tells, giving us a window into the heart of the father, it's a different response entirely, isn't it? The father instead responds by giving him the inheritance. He responds by giving grace and love. Unconditional love and mercy and compassion, even though it hurt him deeply that his son was in essence rejecting him and rejecting his love. the, the father doesn't respond with condemnation and judgment and kicking them out of the family. He responds with love and mercy and compassion. And Jesus tells that because he wants us to understand that's how the heart of God is hardwired. God lets us reject Him if that's what we choose to do. Because He wants the loving relationship that that He desires with us to be authentic, to be genuine. If we decide to turn our back and walk away and shake our fist and say, I don't want anything to do with you, God, He'll let us go. He won't stop chasing after us. He continues to pursue us relentlessly with love and mercy and compassion. But if we say, nope, I don't want anything to do with you, God, because he loves us. He'll let us go that way. We also will have to face the consequences, as the son did, of that decision. And they're not good. But the father shows the son grace in letting him go, gives him his inheritance. And, uh, and then the son goes off, spends the money, goes to Vegas, has a good time, blows it all. And uh, now, he's, now there's a famine in the land, and he's hungry. He's out, of, he's out of money, no credit cards. He's maxed everything out. He's busted and broke in Vegas, and he doesn't have any options left until he goes and gets this job, and he's eating basically slop, but he doesn't get very much of that. And the text says he, what, comes to his senses, right? Or comes to himself, some of the translations render we tend to to look at that as the the light bulb goes on and he says, oh, aha, I've really screwed up. I need to go back and tell my dad I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And so he he rehearses this speech. You know, father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired men, so forth. forth. And so we tend to look at that as he's kind of come to his senses. And now he's he's repenting is the word we use in the church uh, in Christianese. Right. He's turning back. But in fact, the Greek phrasing there means something really quite different, nuanced. It means in a sense he's kind of come to his senses in the sense that he's figured out what he needs to do to to fix the mess that he created. That he's going to devise his own scheme, his own plan to fix the mess that he created. He's going to pay back the money. He's going to figure, Hire, treat me like one of your hired men, then I'll make some money, and I'll pay you back what I just wasted and squandered, right? It has nothing to do with the, the relationship. It has everything to do with paying back the money and getting back in his father's good graces by his own effort, a uh, works righteousness, if you will. And he goes to the, to the dad and says, starts in on, you know, he's been rehearsing it all. You've, you have ever done that when you've had a difficult conversation you need to have with somebody? You rehearse the speech over and over again? So he's walking along the road, and he's, Father, you know, and treat me like one of your hired men. And he's going over and over and over again in his mind what he's going to say. And he gets there, and he starts in on the speech. Father, I've sinned against And the dad interrupts him and says to the servants, quick, quick, let's, let's put a robe on him, put some rings, put, put a sandal on him. And the response is completely different than what the son would have expected. You see, because the son understood that that what he had done was incredibly disgraceful to his father. And most dads in that culture and in that time would not only not have run out to meet their son, but would have been sitting at home like this, just waiting. Waiting to wag the finger, waiting to get in his face, waiting to say, I told you so. And just rub it in. In fact, uh, some scholars say that there was a tradition in that time where it would have been expected in the face of the insult that the son had already uh, given his father that the townsfolk would have stepped in. Uh, a, A practice called Kizaza where they would have gathered together as townsfolk realizing that one of their own has just been gravely insulted. They would have taken, marched that son out to the edge of town And taken a a container of burnt beans. I don't know why burnt beans, but they would. Burnt beans. And they would have broken it at his feet and kicked him out of town. And said, don't you ever come back here again. That would have been the, 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 the norm and the expectation. And here he is. Dad's on the porch, scanning the horizon every day. The light on the porch is on. He sees his son coming from a distance, and he goes out to meet him. doesn't sit back with arms folded and finger wagging. He gathers up his robes, shows a little leg while he's running, which you did not do if you were a person of stature and standing in those days. That was undignified. It was beneath you. He doesn't care. He gathers up his robes. He runs out to meet his sons with open arms and interrupts him in the middle of this, this speech that he's prepared to shower him with grace and love and costly mercy. It cost that dad something to receive his son back. It was a costly, sacrificial gift that he was willing to undertake. Because the dad understood it's not about the money. It's about restoring the relationship. And experiencing the joy of that restored relationship. And the heart of the father compelled him to run and embrace his son and to welcome him home no matter what he had done. I don't know if the folks at Pixar Films have read this story, but I suspect they have because they got it right in the animated kids' film years ago called Finding Nemo. Remember that? I know I'm dating myself a little bit. My kids are all grown. But back in the day, that was kind of a big deal. And we took the kids to see Finding Nemo. And, and I was really struck about how... There, there, there's a part of that film, a large part, that really captures the essence of this. Because you remember the story, right? Nemo's this little clownfish, and he swims, his parents say, stay near home. He doesn't do it. He disobeys. He goes running off, and he's swimming by a, a reef. And there happens to be a dentist who likes to dive and catch these tropical fish and put them in, in, his, in his aquarium in the office. So sure enough, Nemo gets scooped up and taken off to the dentist. And he's in this aquarium, in this office, in this little enclosed space lonely and dejected and depressed realizing he messed up thinking his his dad probably forgot all about him that his life is essentially over meanwhile his dad Marlin hooks up with dory remember dory and and marlon and dory are swimming and they go on these great adventures because marlon is frantically searching for his son he is relentlessly pursuing him but nemo doesn't know this until nigel shows up nigel's the big goofy pelican Right. And Nigel comes and sits on the windowsill in the dentist's office to tell Nemo that his dad is searching for him. And and, and Nigel is there and he says, hey, Nemo, I'm here to tell you, your dad is my dad is looking for me. Yeah. He's fought off sharks and jellyfish to try to find you. Shark. Yeah, I heard he he's fought off three sharks. Nigel says, and and he fought through a whole forest of jellyfish. And now he's riding with a bunch of sea turtles on the Australian current. And the word is, he's on his way right now to Sydney to find you. And Nemo turns around and goes, what a great daddy. Yes, he is. And that kid's animated film from a a Hollywood studio, in a very unique way, captured the essence of the heart of the father in Luke 15. Because this father, in a sense, relentlessly pursues the son that he loves. And when he comes home, he throws the robe on and rings, all the trappings of you're not just a uh, I'm not just kind of sort of welcoming you back. I'm really fully welcoming you back as a son. And then he throws a big feast, a big party. Right. Kills the fat and calf, throws the big party. And the town folk are the ones who would have come to the party. Not just going to be the dad and the son and a couple of servants. It's going to be a big honking deal. They're going to have—I mean, your, I don't know how big your Thanksgiving was, but this would have been bigger—a big, ginormous feast. He would have invited all the townsfolk to come. It usually probably would have gone on for days. Interestingly enough, the townsfolk come because they have this party. They come not because they're glad necessarily that the sun is back. Because he has disgraced their community. They probably have some mixed emotions about the son coming back. They come to the banquet. They respond, unlike those in the great banquet parable that Jesus said, who were self absorbed and self centered, who wouldn't come. These folks come not because they want to honor the son, but because they want to honor the love and the heart of the father. They're embracing his heart of compassion. For his wayward son. And so they want to come and celebrate. And so everybody in the town. Comes to celebrate. Except for one. The other son. Look at verse. uh, 25 meanwhile. The older son was in the field. When he came near the house. He heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. And uh, your brother has come home, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. (laughs) Here's where it gets interesting. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Did you catch that? He refuses to the older brother refuses to embrace the heart of his father. And so the father runs out to meet him as well. Right where he's at. We tend to think that it's the younger brother, the prodigal, who is the one who is really lost. But in fact, his older brother is just as lost as he is. And the Father's heart of grace and compassion and mercy compels him to go running after both of them. The one who's obviously lost because he's misguided and misplaced his life and has misspent his wealth. And the other one who is just as equally lost because he thinks he's got his life all together. That he's managing life very well on his own. Thank you very much. Is equally as lost. And the Father goes out to meet him in his lostness as well. And how does he respond? (laughs) Not too well. He says, Dad, I've been a slave to you. I've done everything that you've asked me to do. I've done it right. I've lived well. I've managed my resources. I've done everything that is expected of me to be a really, really, really good person. And then you give this one the fattened calf. That was the prize prize. Animal in the flock right in the herd you you gave him you didn't even give me a goat To celebrate with my friends, right? You kill the fatted calf. I can't even get a measly goat And he refuses to go in Does he ever go in? We don't know Jesus leaves the story hanging will he ever Embrace the heart of his father. Will he ever share that, that heart for folks who are far away from God? That's the question. Because you see, the heart of the father is the heart of the matter. The heart of the father is the heart of the matter. This story, indeed the entirety of the gospel hinges on that reality that God is so head over heels crazy in love with you and me that he's willing to leave it all behind forsake his 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 glory and come embarrass himself humble himself we're about to celebrate that the humiliation of God in a few weeks on Christmas morning that's what that is God is willing to leave all his majesty and all his glory behind and humble himself and embarrass himself and reach down to lift you and me up from the muck and mire of our lives because he loves us so much. For God so loved the world that he did what? Gave. Love gives. Love sacrifices. Love does whatever's necessary to rescue that which is of value but has been lost. That's the heart of the Father. And the question for us, modern day, contemporary Christ followers, the question for us is, will we embrace it? Will we receive it ourselves, first and foremost? Are we willing to acknowledge that we're lost? See, the the prodigal son didn't really recognize that He was lost until he came face to face with the lavish love and the costly grace of his father. He had had a speech prepared. He was all ready to go. But it was only when he came face to face with the compassion and the mercy and the love of God that he realized all of that stuff doesn't hold water. I'm lost. I want to be found. The older brother seems to never embrace it. But the challenge is whether you're the younger brother Or the older brother, and there's probably some of each of us in this room, and I've been both. Will we receive the reality? Will we embrace the reality that first and foremost, without Jesus, we are utterly and totally lost? And if we will, are we then willing to embrace the heart of the Father to pursue those in love? around us who may never have known who may never have even heard or dared to hope or believe that they could be loved just right where they're at. There are people all around us here in Mill Creek and Bothell and the surrounding communities who've never heard, who do not know. We find that hard to believe, but the reality is In the United States of America, there are increasing, dramatically increasing numbers of people who have no religious affiliation whatsoever, who have no definable or discernible spiritual life, who in many cases don't even know a single Christ follower. They're the people that you work with. They're the people that live two houses down from you. Or they they, they share a cubicle across the office space. They're the people at the checkout stand in the Safeway or the the person at the child care center where you drop your, your kid off at the gym. They're real people who live in this community who do not know that they have a father who loves them and is pursuing them. And God has placed Northview Church here in this community. At this time and place in history, to be that beacon of light, to be that ambassador of hope and joy and peace that can come to point people and to introduce people to Jesus. That's all that God asks us to do. That's the one thing he wants us to focus on. You remember that Jesus was leaving, uh, getting ready to ascend back to his father in heaven to resume his place in glory after humbling himself. And before he left, he gave his disciples a word of direction and instruction. Do you remember? He said, look, guys, I'm going away, and uh, I'm going to be gone for a while. But while I'm away, I want you to do essentially one thing. What is that? Make disciples, right? Help people become like Jesus. Meet him in the first place and grow as, as they become more and more like him. I want you to help people find that reality in their life make disciples while i'm gone find your one thing and then when i get back well we'll we'll talk about how you did right i kind of want a progress report when i get back i want to know how did you do northview church christians how did you do at helping other people as well as yourself grow more and more like christ that's the one thing that Jesus, it's kind of like, a, I don't know if I'm really going to date myself here. Remember City Slickers with uh, Billy Crystal and Curly? Remember, anybody remember Curly? I'm, I'm going way back. And Curly said to, to those uptight urban guys out on the cattle drive, you got to find your one thing, right? What is, I don't, it's your one thing. Well, Jesus has given us in the church our one thing, make disciples. We get distracted and pulled in so many different directions that we sometimes lose sight of that one thing that we're to be about, making disciples. And so I just want to lovingly challenge and encourage you this morning to to renew your passion and your focus for that one thing. To be committed together as a church that God has placed here at this time, in this place in history, to shine the light of his love and invite people and introduce people to Jesus. You know what, though? So often, um, people will say to me, I don't know how to do that, right? We've heard sermons like this before. You've probably heard, if you've been a Christ follower for any length of time, you've probably heard many sermons on the Great Commission. Preacher gets up, starts reading from Matthew 28, you're going, okay, I know where this is going, right? Heard this before, and some of us begin to tune out, right? Because we're not a Billy Graham, we're not a natural or supernaturally gifted evangelist. That's not who we are. I don't know how to be that kind of person that can you know, proclaim the gospel and, and, and invite people to, to come to Jesus. I'm not a, I'm not a communicator like, like some of the great preachers, like Peter in the New Testament. And Peter was one of those guys, he was always you know, opening mouth, inserting foot, but he, he was, he was, God used him in a dramatic way. But Peter had a brother. Anybody remember who Peter's brother was? Andrew. We don't think much about Andrew. Because Andrew is kind of a quiet, behind the scenes, under the radar kind of guy. He doesn't get a lot of spotlight. He doesn't get a lot of press. But he's incredibly effective at introducing people to Jesus. He introduces his brother, first of all, and then later on, there's a couple other episodes. There's one memorable one in particular where they're, where they're on the hillside, and they've got all these people to feed. And Jesus says to the disciples, you give them something to eat. And they're like, what? We don't have, this, this is crazy. We can't feed all these people. There's thousands of people here. Jesus said, you give them something to eat. And who shows up at that moment? Andrew, right? And Andrew's found this little kid who brought his lunch. And so Andrew brings a little kid along. He says, hey, Jesus, I, I met this guy. He's got a Lunchable. It won't go very far, but, um, you know, some crackers, some lunch meat, a little bit of cheese. And uh, it's all we got. But here, I, I just, Jesus and my friend, this is Jesus. I'll let you guys sort it out. And Andrew disappears from the scene. That's Andrew, the effective evangelist. He's really good at introducing people to Jesus and then getting out of the way and letting Jesus take over from there. So you may not be a Peter, but you can be... Uh, And Andrew, you may not be a Billy Graham, but you can be an Albert McMakin. Anybody know who he was? Not many. He's not he doesn't garner the the, the millions of crowds that, that Billy Graham did. But if it hadn't been for Albert McMakin, we probably would never have known of Billy Graham and his incredible fruitfulness and effectiveness. Albert McMakin was a guy who had a heart for those who were far away from God. And there was, a, there was a, a tent revival or one of those kind of uh, rallies going on in their town. And Albert asked Billy to drive the truck with a bunch of high school students to go to this rally. And so Billy agreed because he knew Albert. And he, he, Yeah, sure, I'll drive the truck. Didn't want anything to do with this Christianity business, but he agreed to drive the truck. And he got there, heard the gospel, and responded, and the rest, as they say, is history. Millions of lives have been impacted. I'm one of the products of those. My mother came to faith at a Billy Graham crusade. I would not be here today speaking to you right now if it hadn't been for Albert McMakin who asked Billy Graham to drive a truck. You may not be a Billy Graham, but you can darn well be an Albert McMakin. You can be an Andrew. You can reach the people in your world. You don't have to reach all of them. I want to challenge you this morning to think and pray this next year about reaching one. One person in your life. Northview through Alpha is going to give you the context and the strategy and the structure to be able to to do that. The beauty of Alpha is it's so relational. It's so authentic. It's basically dinner, a talk, and some discussion. And in the discussion, guests are invited to share whatever they think, whatever they believe, to bring whatever questions, doubts, struggles they have to the table. And those of us who are seated at those tables, who are committed Christians, will learn to listen well. We oftentimes talk a lot and have all the answers, we don't always listen very well. And it's a learned skill when we come together with, a, with a, the heart of the Father, with a passion for those who are far away from God. It's a learned skill. To listen well to the struggles, to the questions, to the doubts, and let them say whatever's on their mind. And do so in a respectful, loving, nurturing way. So I want to challenge you when, when the invite goes out, you're going to hear about it in the next few weeks. You're going to hear about it on Christmas Eve. You're going to lead up to this incredible night on January 10th. Be in prayer. Hit your knees right now and start asking God, Lord, who is that one person in my life? That I can invite to come to one night of Alpha. You don't have to ask him to sign up for all 10 weeks. Just ask God to give you the wisdom and the direction and the courage to invite one person for one night. Who's your one person? The Father pursued both brothers. I'm just asking you to pursue one. So, who's that person in your workplace? in your family, in your neighborhood, in your circle of friends that the Holy Spirit right now is putting on your heart and mind saying it's that one will you begin to pray that's all I'm asking you to do right now, just pray for God to open up an opportunity for you to invite them to the first night of Alpha and let Jesus take it from there don't ask them just yet, start praying right now Better to talk to God about your friends before you talk to your friends about God. So just start praying right now and say, God, would you open up a doorway? Help me to be sensitive and wise and a good steward of that opportunity just to invite them to come with me to that first night of Alpha. Bring their questions. Bring their doubts. Bring whatever they've got, their baggage, their hurts, their skepticism. Bring it all. So that they can come together and meet Jesus. That's my prayer. And I believe you are in for an exciting adventure. When you begin to hear lives changed and the stories of transformation, about half, third to a half of the people who come on an Alpha, and there have been 27 million of them over the last several years, report that they have had a life-changing experience. Many of them meet Jesus for the very first time because the Andrews of this world invited them to dinner listen to a talk, and have some discussion. That's it. So my challenge is embrace the heart of the Father, Northview. Embrace it and recognize that God has placed you here strategically for such a time as this, because the heart of the Father is the heart of the matter. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you love each one of us unconditionally and without regard to um, where we're at in life, whether we've got our act together and look really good, or whether we're just a mess and things are falling apart all around us or somewhere in between. Lord, your love for us is not conditional. It's not predicated on, on us kind of figuring stuff out first and getting our, our lives in order first. But, Lord, your love is is so lavish and so free. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it, but we desperately need it. And so this morning we just come before you and we ask for your grace, we ask for your help, your courage and your wisdom. Guide us to that one person that we could have your heart for and reach out to and invite them to come, maybe meet Jesus for the first time. Lord, I pray for your blessing on Northview as this body reaches out to this community. I pray that your Holy Spirit will just anoint them in a profound and powerful way so that in the years to come, they'll look back on this time and say, man, God was up to something pretty incredible. Lord, just bless this effort. May there be much fruit that comes from it for many, many years to come for Christ and his kingdom. In his name we pray. Amen.